Hello and welcome to Queer is Fact, the podcast bringing you queer history from around the world and throughout time. My name is Eli. I'm Alice. And today we're continuing our discussion about the 19th century British military surgeon, Dr. James Barry. I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation as the traditional owners of the land on which we record this podcast, and pay respects to their elders past and present. We recognize them as the custodians of an oral history tradition far older than this podcast. We have some content warnings before we start this episode. The episode will contain periodical discussion of misogyny, transphobia, racism, and colonialism, as well as brief mentions of war infectious disease and epidemics, and the rape of a minor. It will also include outdated language for intersex people and misgendering in quotes. If any of that sounds like something that you don't want to listen to, feel free to skip this episode and try out one of our other episodes instead. This is the second of two episodes on James's life that we're doing, as I've already alluded to. I would obviously encourage you to listen to the first one if you haven't already before we listen to this one, but I'll give a little recap of what we talked about in the first one anyway. James was born in 1789 in Cork, Ireland, and moved to London when he was a teenager with his mother. While in London, a plan was hatched for James to begin presenting as male and to go to medical school in Edinburgh. This plan was carried out possibly with the help of some of his late uncle's close friends who were taking an interest in James and his mother and who we know were aware of the plan, but that's all quite complicated. So if you want to know more about that, listen to the first episode. Once in Edinburgh, James distinguished himself as a medical student and he graduated in 1812. The following year, he joined the army and after some time at British military hospitals in England, he was posted to Cape Town, South Africa in 1816. While in South Africa, he became very close with the governor, Lord Charles Somerset, and partly due to this and partly due to his own merits as well, he rose very high very quickly. I think it's worth mentioning that he became close to the governor, also partly due to his own merits of like saving the governor's life. Yeah. Their relationship was the focus of a scandal in Cape Town, and it's thought by some historians today that the two were lovers. They were certainly close enough that in 1829, by which point Charles had returned to London and James had been posted to Mauritius, James abandoned his post when he heard Charles was ill and cared for him during the last year of his life. After Charles died, James was posted to Jamaica, where he served from June of 1831 to February of 1835. This was the first of a long series of postings, mostly to small islands, which would make up the rest of James's career. So he was sent to St. Helena, Antigua, Barbados, Trinidad, Malta, Corfu, and finally Canada. Canada <laughs> is obviously not a small island. <laughs> As you might imagine, each of these postings were situated in their own complex political situations and all had different challenges. We're not going to go into any one of these in particular depth for time reasons, but I'll give you an idea of some common issues that James dealt with in these various postings. So the issues he dealt with, which were common for sort of all military doctors to have to deal with, were venereal disease, alcoholism, the effects of punitive floggings, and infectious diseases such as malaria, yellow fever, and cholera, which sometimes developed into epidemics. That's in addition to when there's an active conflict going on, obviously, the wounds and so forth that come with that kind of thing. Although it was some time until he was given power on the level that he'd held in Cape Town, He nevertheless continued to try and improve medical conditions in all of his postings. His career was quite characterized by the dual nature that we noted during his time in Cape Town. So the regiment assistant surgeon Edward Bradford first met James in 1832 in Jamaica and described him thus, through life his irritable and impatient temper brought him into constant collision with authority. (laughs) 
He was, however, very capable of generous feeling and of gratitude to those who were kind to him. So this seems to be pretty much the impression that James made wherever he went. He was certainly a very good doctor and there were people who noted just how generous and kind he was in his bedside manner and in dealing with people. And then there were also people who noticed that he just had this like terrible temper and was very rude and disrespectful. And that's just how he was. <laughs> So you mentioned that he was posted in like a bunch of different places. Yes. Was it normal for a military doctor to be posted in that many different places? Or was he like doing notably short stints in different places? As far as I can tell, it is normal. Okay. And the reasons he gets moved around are governed by this kind of like complex military dealings of like different people being like promoted or mm. like leaving via retirement or whatever and you know James and other doctors became known for their capabilities in dealing with certain things so like certain oh, yeah. postings would need certain types of expertise and as we are talking about a period of several decades like obviously James does rise through the ranks of the military mm -hmm. uh, and so he gradually gets postings that are more in line with his increased status within the army and so forth so that doesn't seem to be like someone's like well make him someone else's problem or anything like that like that does okay. seem as far as i can tell to be just like fairly typical and that makes sense i think like if we think about the stereotypical life of someone in the armed services today like we have that like army brat mm, phrase yeah. to refer to kids of people in the army or whatever where we understand that means like they probably moved around a lot so to give you a bit of an example of the situations that james would be in because of this dual nature i'll talk a little bit about his time on saint helena is that where napoleon was exiled to yes it was he is not here anymore okay. <laughs> yeah. that was my follow-up question yeah. yeah napoleon is not someone who's really going to come up in this episode they don't ever meet or anything like that but he was sort of in the background and their paths did almost cross like several times it's just kind of interesting if you're interested in that kind yeah. of thing so on saint helena james had been quite notable in his caring for paupers the homeless prisoners and sailors of all nationalities who arrived on the island and he'd also established a vaccination service to prevent against smallpox outbreaks good on you james he also performed inspections and found the military hospital to be in quite good condition but the civilian hospital overcrowded and in quite poor condition and so he spent several months badgering the governor who had been instructed to restrict expenditures and therefore did not like this <laughs> to uh, give him funding for additional premises and eventually after some time, he did get the funding to set up additional wards in, I believe it's a converted bakehouse or something like that. Sometime after that, James asked the assistant commissary, General Francis Edward Knowles, for supplies, and Knowles had refused him seemingly just because he had a personal dislike for James. <laughs> James wrote not to the governor because he knew that the governor would refuse him mm -hmm. this as well because of the restrictions on expenditures, but to the governor's superior. <laughs> Knowles found out about this and was furious, and James was arrested on a charge of conduct unbecoming an officer and a gentleman, taken into custody, and <sighs> held there for a while until there was a hearing. <laughs> Imagine if, if you went over your boss's head, like, you could just get arrested. You could just go to jail. <laughs> oh, my boss would love that. <laughs> He was acquitted, so there's not really any, like, lasting <laughs> consequences for this. It does seem that, like, he repeatedly gets himself into these situations. And, like, this isn't the only time he was arrested or almost arrested. But nothing ever really seems to stick to him. Well, that's either. lucky. So that's good, I guess. 
It wasn't until his time in Barbados, where he was posted in 1840, that James, to quote uh, Dupreece and Drunfield, managed to get through an extended period in high authority without antagonizing his superiors, getting himself arrested, court-martialed, or threatened with imprisonment. (laughs) While he was a medical student, James had largely kept to himself. We talked about that a bit last episode. But by this point, he's much more outgoing and more involved in the social life of the various places that he was posted. A fort adjutant called Wilson, who knew James in Jamaica, remembered that James enjoyed attending weddings and christenings and was often seen at dinner parties where he would tell outrageous stories and portray himself as, quote, quite a lady killer. (laughs) (laughs) That should obviously bring up the question of if James is really quite a lady killer. And I just wanted to quickly note that we don't actually really know anything about James's sexuality or any relationships that he might have had. The potential relationship with Lord Charles Somerset is the only example of him being linked to a specific person. And we spoke last episode about how that was like pretty unsure about if that had ever happened Mm -hmm. or not. I assume that most of his talk about women was just bragging. I mean, given the fact that they said he makes up outlandish stories Mm. and portrays himself as a lady killer, like it implies that both these things are exaggerated. That's not to say that he didn't have, you know, relationships with women that we just happen not to know about. Yeah, Yeah. Dupree's and Dronfield suggest both that James does this as part of projecting this masculine persona and also that he might have generally been attracted to women and they don't really commit to (laughs) any of that. So it's just not something that we know that much about, but I thought I'd explicitly address it given that quote. I think it also, like, creates a certain image of who James was as a person. (laughs) Yeah. It would be remiss of me to not mention his pets. It would be remiss if you did not mention his friends. (laughs) So Edward Bradford recalled that he was always addicted to pet animals, dogs, monkeys, and parrots. I love that he said addicted, and I love that we have monkeys here. Because we've talked about how we have, you know, like a lot of lesbians with monkeys. But this is our second trans man with a monkey. True. So uh, climbing up the rankings of queer people with monkeys. Truly, like... Queer women and queer men have solidarity. Yeah, and it's monkeys. I should buy monkeys when they <laughs> probably shouldn't. James's most important pet was a little dog he had called Psyche, and he had a series of dogs with the same name uh, over his like entire career. I guess that makes life like you know simpler. I wonder because you said he had a little dog called Psyche. Were they all like the same type of dog? I don't know. I saw it referred to as a poodle, but we do have a photo of him with a dog, which we not- presume is. A psyche and I'm like it doesn't look like a poodle to me okay. but I don't know dog breeds change I guess that's so, true yeah uh, the one we have a photo of is like a little white dog okay nice 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 yeah we'll post it he looks grumpy <laughs> wait the dog or James the dog <laughs> Psyche became characteristic of James and was often mentioned in recollections of him. Dr. R.T. McCowan, who was a civilian physician who knew James on Trinidad, mentioned his favorite little dog, which he always carried about with him. (laughs) I love that it says carried about, not was always with him. Like, it's like, you know, one of those tiny dogs people have in their handbags or something. Mm, You know how doctors used to have, like, those big leather bags? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just that with a dog in it. That's so unhygienic. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously. It's also often noted that James was a vegetarian. Oh. With Bradford saying that when he knew him, James's diet consisted of milk and fruit, which is very modern of him. <laughs> but we do have mentions of him at other times eating things that are not just milk and fruit. So, Given that we said that he attended a lot of dinner parties, like, yeah. surely he didn't just eat milk and fruit at the dinner yeah, parties. That's true. 
I mean, obviously people who have very strict dietary requirements can and do go to dinner parties, but like, I feel like it would be more discussed if that was the case. Yeah. Oh, I know that by the time he was in Canada, he developed a very strong liking for, I think it was turnips or like some other root vegetable. It might have been like a parsnip or something. <laughs> Those are two of the most like neutral to negative vegetables. Yeah. Well, I think like it was specifically a type of Canadian turnip. So I don't know, maybe there's something going on in that part of the world with their turnips, okay. which he really liked, but he liked them like roasted or something like that in particular Mm -hmm. and a woman at a dinner party heard he liked them and served him like mashed ones and he was like this is inedible (laughs) (laughs) i think it was polite and they did anyway no i think he was like no this is inedible i will not be eating this rude (laughs) yeah (laughs) at some point in his career james took on a black man as a servant who would stay in james's employment for the rest of james's life so a period of several decades Mm -hmm. i just wanted to note him because as James like moves around a lot, he doesn't have a lot of these kind of like lifelong close attachments to people. So presumably this man is one of the most central people in James's life. Mm-hmm. Um, we unfortunately don't really know anything about him for sure. The historical record has paid little attention to him. He's not discussed very much due, no doubt, to his social status and race. Do we Uh, know his name? Well, uh, yeah. So our only record of his name actually comes from Charles Dickens, who, (laughs) as we mentioned last episode, wrote a sort of like fictionalized account of James's life after his death. And Charles Dickens calls him Black John. So I think it's just as likely as not that that was not his name at all. Mm -hmm. But it felt more respectful to me to just call him John rather than like James's servant or something like that when he comes up. So we're going to call him John. That's fair. So nobody else has recorded his name. No. But they've made it apparent that this man was like with James for many decades. Yeah. So I'm like a little confused about what exactly even are our sources for him. He's mentioned Mm -hmm. throughout the biographies as being with James throughout his life. His servant will be mentioned occasionally, I guess, in the sources. But like, I don't know anything else about our records of this man. I don't even feel like I can say with confidence when James first started to employ him. So Dupree's and Dronfield say that James hired John while he was in Jamaica and that John was a soldier of the West India Regiment. However, they just don't provide any citation for this. And like one of the other biographies had an entirely other story for who John was that was clearly speculative. So I don't know if Dupree and Dronfield are just like filling in the gaps with information mm-hmm. that seems likely to them. Like, I don't know. Okay. Um, but like, as I said, it seems like he's a fairly important person. And so I didn't want to just omit him from the episode. Yeah. Like he's been kind of omitted enough. In the 1850s, during the Crimean War, James was posted on the Greek island of Corfu. So Corfu is a Greek island. It's off the west coast of Greece. And the Crimean War was fought on the Crimean Peninsula, which is on the north of the Black Sea. And like the Black Sea in turn is to the north of Turkey, which is to the (laughs) east of Greece. (laughs) Just Google a map, guys. Just Google a map. (laughs) So, you know, it's it's relatively close by to where James is posted, but he's not actually, like, on the front lines Mm -hmm. or anything like that is what you should take away from it. So Corfu isn't directly involved, but it did see soldiers passing to and from the front line. Mm -hmm. James applied for a posting to the front line, but it was not approved. He then suggested that Corfu be used for convalescence and received about 500 casualties over the winter of 1854 to 1855. The recovery rate of these men was very, very good, and it exceeded that seen elsewhere. Is that just thanks to James? Yes. It is explicitly noted from sources at the time that James did good. 
Good job, James. Yeah. Thanks, James. In October of 1855, James took a leave of absence to go and see the front himself. Just for funsies? Just he wants to see what's going on. Okay. If there was a war anywhere near me, I would absolutely not be taking leave to just go check it out, but that's well, fine. I guess he's a military yeah, doctor. You, <laughs> I'm a regular civilian. <laughs> you also didn't choose to go into the army, so like <laughs> he's obviously got feelings about, I mean, I don't know specifically, but like Something he about obviously the army. wants to provide his services in this capacity so you can kind of see how it would follow that he would go and do this on the way to the front he passed through turkey and visited the skatari barracks which were being used as a military hospital by the british the barracks form essentially like a big square with a huge quadrangle in the middle james rode into this quadrangle on his horse with two servants and his dog and pet goat (laughs) pet goat yeah i believe called i don't know I believe he has the goat for milk. I mean, that makes sense, yes. especially if he has like quite a restricted diet yeah. that includes milk. That yeah, fair. <laughs> yeah. So it's not really a pet goat per se. Oh, but, I mean, maybe. But I like to think the goat was his friend. <laughs> I mean, the goat maybe his friend. Mm. Uh, yeah, I don't have like a source as a hand, so it could be apocryphal. But I seem to remember quotes about him being like fond of the goat. Good. I don't know. Good. I like goats, so I like to think so. The day was very hot and James noticed a young nurse walking across the quadrangle wearing a cap that James thought was inadequate for the weather. James gave her a harsh and public lecture about her inappropriate sun protection. It's probably a uniform. Leave the woman alone. (laughs) Yeah. I just like to think of what a big fan of Slip Slop Slap he would have been. (laughs) Sometimes I try to explain Slip Slop Slap to people overseas and they're like, is that some kind of cult? And I'm like, no, it's just wearing a hat and sunscreen. And, and it's a shirt. shirt. Yeah, yeah, I think that shirt. no child has ever wanted to wear it in a pool or on the beach. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, this nurse turned out to be Florence Nightingale. <laughs> uh, Incredible. With whom I assume we're all familiar. <laughs> Famous nurse. Yeah. Crimean War. Those are the key facts, cool. I think. We're there. Um, she unsurprisingly developed an instant dislike to James. So would I. <laughs> Recalling the incident after James's death, Florence wrote, I never had such a blackguard rating in all my life. I have had more than any woman than from this Barry sitting on his horse. He behaved like a brute. And she called <laughs> James the most hardened creature I have ever met. <laughs> That's so funny because we've been like, oh, he has this little dog. He has this little goat. He's like the most hardened creature I've yeah. ever met. <laughs> I mean, you see that, right? Like, like as I said towards the start of the episode, he – was very soft and also the worst. <laughs> I don't think I would like like him as a person. Probably not. But he's good entertainment value. So this is the extent of their interactions with each other. Nevertheless, people have made quite a lot of this meeting, partly because they're both famous historical figures, I yeah. guess, but also because James and Florence are two people both assigned female at birth who both struggled to get into a medical field, although by very different routes. Now, this is a very serious conversation, obviously, that we're about to have about people okay. assigned female at birth, like getting into medical uh-huh. school. But it's just very funny that like that serious conversation is just going to come out of some guy stopping someone being like put a hat on you're not sun smart and then just riding away and her being like excuse me <laughs> like that has nothing to do with them both being assigned no. female at birth and struggling to get into medical school it doesn't <laughs> james's biographers have sort of taken this connection further and wondered why they didn't feel any solidarity towards each other rachel holmes for example notes in her 2002 biography nightingale concedes not an inch of sisterhood to this woman whose ambitions were apparently so similar to her own holmes also notes with interest that that Florence continued to call James he, even after his death, 
when he had been like outed to the world and there were a lot of mixed pronouns going around in the press. Oh, um, good on Florence. Yeah, there's a lot that could be said about how people spoke about James's gender immediately after his death and also, frankly, about like the politics going on in the medical profession at the time that influenced why uh, James and Florence didn't like each other. But I kind of just wanted to note that I found it kind of satisfying that modern biographers have so much trouble with James's gender and Florence Nightingale was just like, well, I met him and he was a jerk. <laughs> and that's all that matters. Yes. <laughs> the worst man I ever met. <laughs> so as we've already alluded to, over the course of his career, James gradually rose through the ranks. And in 1857, he received what would be his final posting to Canada. During this posting, he was made Inspector General of Hospitals, which was the second highest medical position in the army and the equivalent of a Brigadier General. <laughs> that really clarified things for yeah. me. <laughs> It sounds fancy, and maybe it will mean more to others. <laughs> maybe so. Yes. I mean, I think, like, second highest medical position in the army is fairly clear in how high it's up. It's the second yeah. highest. <laughs> but Brigadier General, I'm just like, cool. Nice. <laughs> the station in Canada was fairly well run, and his job was more maintenance and reform, unlike some of his previous postings. But for you know quite an older man at this point, that's probably for the best. How old is he right now? Well, in 1857, he would have been 68. Oh, okay. So he is quite old. Yeah, we've kind of moved through a lot of time. Very <laughs> we did. I didn't even notice. In 1859, he applied for leave and sailed home to London with John and his pets. While in London, he was called before a medical board, and due to his age, poor health, and continued conflict with important people in Canada, <laughs> he was relieved of his command. <sighs> he was very upset by this. He felt that he had more to give. He wasn't ready to retire, even though by now he was 70 years old. Mm -hmm. He'd only brought a small amount of luggage to London with him because he'd assumed he would be returning to Montreal. The remainder of his belongings were now packed and sent by ship to London. Uh, the ship that they were sent on was wrecked. Oh, no. And all of his possessions were lost. It's like losing your luggage when you go overseas, but so much worse. So much worse. This is obviously a great loss to historians, as on that ship were letters and documents spanning James's entire career. Uh, it is, of course, a greater loss to James, who had lost his career and most of his belongings effectively in one stroke. He found himself, as many older people do, uh, without a clear purpose and with a shrinking circle of friends. Hmm. In his retirement, James went on holiday to the West Indies and visited some old friends. Oh yeah, it's Josiah. Yeah, one of the friends he visited was Josiah Cluter, who had had a duel with in his youth. Uh, <laughs> that was fun. If John was indeed from Jamaica, as DePries and Dronfield tell us, this would have been a very significant trip for him because it would have been a return home for the first time in nearly 30 years. James then returned to England and rented a room in Marlebone in a house belonging to Mr. James Anderson and his wife Elizabeth. By July of 1865, James was ill with cholera, and at four o'clock in the morning on the 25th of July 1865, James passed away. So the maid employed at the Anderson's house was a woman called Sophia Bishop and she had sat with him during his illness and it was she who went to get James's doctor Dr. David McKinnon who was an army doctor James knew. He came that morning confirmed the death, left Sophia to organise the laying out and informed the army. As far as he knew there were no family or friends to take responsibility for James's affairs and so he set about doing so himself. That's very sad. Yeah it is. 
What became of John? I cannot stress how unclear everything to do with John is. <laughs> the layer out came and took care of the body. She would ordinarily have received some kind of payment, but Mrs. Anderson wasn't in, and so she left without payment for the moment. Sophia aired out the room, and on the 26th of July, she and Dr. McKinnon went to the Marlebone Register office to record the death. On his death certificate, his sex was recorded as male. On the 29th of July, a small funeral was held and he was buried in Kensal Green Cemetery in Chelsea. So I realize that we've reached the death quite early in this episode, and that's because there's several things to deal with now. As you can imagine, we're going to have quite a lengthy chat about James's gender. But first is time for a mysterious interlude. <laughs> Ooh. In 1949. In 1949. 1949. Okay. A man named John McCrindle wrote to the Glasgow Times about James. When James had been on holiday in Jamaica during his retirement, he had befriended John's father, a Scottish expat who was living in Jamaica. While he was there, James had fallen ill, and the situation was serious enough that he thought he might die. He called for McCrindle, who, you know, he didn't know that many people in Jamaica. McCrindle's like about the best friend he has at the time, and shows him a small black box. He asked McCrindle to collect and keep the box if James passed away until it was sent for. He did not say what was in it or who would sent for it. And then James got better, and so it was irrelevant. After James died in England, a footman in livery visited the house and took away the black box. Oh. He also took away James's dog and gave John money to travel home to Jamaica. John apparently told McCrindle about what had happened to the box upon his return to Jamaica. Oh. <laughs> uh, now, McCrindle, and by McCrindle, I mean McCrindle's son, John. McCrindle Jr. McCrindle Jr., yeah. <laughs> is our only source for the existence of this box and much of that story. Much but not all, or? There are apparently other sources for footmen coming and visiting James's rooms after his death. Dupreeze and Dronfield said that, but they did not tell me what they were. That's and bad scholarship. Dupreeze and Dronfield cite so thoroughly that when they don't, I can tell something's up. <laughs> I mean, something's definitely up. <laughs> yeah. Holmes also mentions the footman coming, and from her quote, it's clear that she's referring to Charles Dickens's short story on James, which I'm inclined to not trust at all. I don't know if there are other sources. Uh, Dupreeze and Dronfield definitely say or like imply that there are several, but the only ones I know of are this mysterious 1949 letter to the uh, Glasgow Times and Charles Dickens' story that he wrote. Okay, so it's quite possible yes. that McCrindle Jr., a random Scottish man yes. read Dickens's story. I was like, ah, oh, I think my dad used to know that guy. And then was like, what if I wrote this fun letter to the newspaper? Yeah, it, it absolutely is. Uh, I don't feel like we should automatically assume any of that was true. <laughs> yeah. But it's like a pretty crazy thing to make up. Like, I am intrigued. Maybe yeah. it's true. But um, like, if so, what's what's in the box? What's in the box? Dupreeze and Dronfeld speculate that it might have contained documents, perhaps sensitive letters from Charles that James had agreed to return to the Somerset family after his death. Like, this is just entirely made up. <laughs> we have no idea what was in this box or if this box existed, but, like, I felt I should tell you about the mysterious black box. <laughs> yeah. Charles Dickens and McCrindle's letter are, as far as I can tell, also our only two sources about what ultimately happens to John. Charles Dickens tells us that John was given the, like, fare to return home from this footman. But, you know, like, I, I just really don't 
know why we're acting like we can trust this story that Charles Dickens wrote. And then McCrindle, I believe, mentions that his father was like told about the footman taking the box by John when John had got back. Okay. So, you know, that's <laughs> potentially what happened to a man who was maybe called John. Well, I hope somebody sometime can do some very in-depth research and tell us more about John and maybe incidentally more about the box. Yeah. Moving yeah. on. <laughs> A few weeks later, in August, Dr. McKinnon was summoned to a meeting to settle some unfinished business with James's estate. He was surprised to meet with the layer out who had prepared James's body. So, is layer out like a whole job? Like, no, we don't really know anything about this woman apart from her involvement with this, so I don't know what she did. I understand that these women often also delivered babies. Okay. Uh, so, like, no, it's not their whole job. It's something that they were, like, paid for and, like, one-off goes and they probably also have other sources of income mm. that they were paid for similarly. The woman told him that Mrs. Anderson had refused to pay her the fee for the laying out and that somebody was going to have to do so. She thought that it could come from James's estate or from the army. Dr. McKinnon recounted the meeting in a letter to the general registrar, shortly thereafter. So I'm going to read you a passage of that letter now. Amongst other things, she said that Dr. Barry was a female and that I was a pretty doctor not to know this and she would not like to be attended by me. I informed her that it was none of my business whether Dr. Barry was a male or a female and that I thought that he might be neither, viz. an imperfectly developed man. She then said that she had examined the body and it was a perfect female and farther that there were marks of her having had a child when very young. I then inquired, how have you formed that conclusion? The woman, pointing to the lower part of her stomach, said, from marks here, I'm a married woman and the mother of nine children and I ought to know. The woman seems to think that she had become acquainted with a great secret and wished to be paid for keeping it. I informed her that all Dr. Barry's relatives were dead and that it was no secret of mine and that my own impression was that Dr. Barry was a hermaphrodite. But whether Dr. Barry was a male, female or hermaphrodite, I do not know. Dr. McKinnon left the meeting without paying her. The woman then went on to tell others her story and the story began to appear in the papers. Uh, we don't know exactly how, but I assume those things are connected. I mean, she like pretty specifically was like, pay me or I'll tell people. Yeah. And he didn't pay her. So yeah, she probably knows the papers. Yeah. And then disappearing in the papers was the reason the general registrar wrote to McKinnon to confirm the matter. Oh, okay. uh, and so that's why he wrote this account. So there's a lot to unpack there. There is a lot to unpack there. This layer out and her testimony, which she eventually leaks everywhere, is very important because this is ultimately how we know that James wasn't just, like, a cisgender man in the army. It's interesting that she only, like, told this account because she wasn't paid. Mm. Like, just, like, if they just paid her the day she turned up, we would just never know, probably. Maybe. I mean, the fact that she's clearly leveraging this for money, I think, potentially means that she would have, like, if she had been paid that day, decided, you know, I can probably get more from the army if I try mm. and bribe them, or I can probably get more from a paper or something like that anyway. Yeah. But yeah, like, it, it really just is on the decision of this one woman that we have this history at all which is yeah. quite interesting. So there are sort of several questions in James's biography that are raised by this letter. Uh, mm -hmm. The first I want to discuss is that uh, the letter is the basis of speculation in the scholarship that James had a child. Yeah. So I guess the first thing I want to say about that is that, like, needless to say, this woman is hardly – a reliable source, uh, and given that she's already trying to blackmail people, it seems hardly unlikely to me that she would have embellished her story to make it more sensational, perhaps. Oh, yeah. You know, it's one thing for, in her 
view a woman to be in the army, but like a mother in the army mm-hmm. is one step more scandalous. Even if this was not the case and she honestly thought that James had been pregnant, she's not necessarily as big an authority on this as she claimed herself to be. <laughs> I mean, her evidence seems to be that he has stretch marks on his stomach. Yeah. Which like, you know. Just kind of happens Just kind of happens to be. Yeah. So like, that's true. I'm going to read you a quote <laughs> to that effect now from a uh, medical man. So. He could have just gained some weight and lost some weight. Yeah. So Kuba and Young, uh, in a paper published in the Journal of the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh, wrote about this, the abdominal wall stretch marks, which were only described by the charwoman, whose intentions have been called into question by many, are not uncommon in older people, especially if a history of weight loss has been present, and are associated with a spectrum of other pathological and non-pathological conditions. They are by no means diagnostic of previous pregnancy. Okay. Uh, I do not specifically know if James had like put on and lost a lot of weight at any point, but I do know that he's had various diseases like malaria, mm. cholera, yellow fever, and things like that at multiple points. So it seems not unlikely yeah. that that could be the cause of that. Nevertheless, Dupreece and Dronfield do think that James had a child at some point. Now I must take you all the way back to the beginning of our last episode <laughs> to explain to you their theory. So at the beginning of last episode, I said that Marianne and Jeremiah, James's parents, Mm -hmm. had two children, John and James. Yeah. There was also a third child, Juliana, born to the family between 1801 and 1803. When was James born again? 1789. Okay. So like a while after. There are only a few surviving references to Juliana, all from letters at the time. Uh, So for example, a letter from John to his father in, I believe, around 1803, ends, give my love to my dear mother and sisters. Okay. So yeah. that's the sort of evidence we have about <laughs> Juliana's life. So Juliana definitely existed. Yeah, yeah, she definitely existed. Like I said, we only have those sort of few references, and then she sort of seems to kind of disappear. Uh, she's not with James and Marianne when they go to London. Mm-hmm. There's a mention, I don't remember exactly when, like in a paper or something, when Juliana would have been in her mid-twenties, of a Miss Bulkley in Cork working as a seamstress or some such. And Dupreece and Dronfield think that that surname is unusual enough that that must be Juliana. I don't know if that's like sound reasoning or not. I've done a lot of family history research and that's, I I don't buy it. Okay, cool. (laughs) Um, So like, it seems possible to me that maybe she died as a child or something. I mean, I guess it's like, if that is Juliana and there's this weird gap where we don't hear about Juliana in connection with the family, like we know they were pretty hard up for money Mm. at that time when Marianne and James went to London. Like she may have just gone to live with another family. Yeah. Uh, And in any case, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter uh the degree to which juliana is relevant is just like that she's born okay that definitely occurred <laughs> good 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 so Dupreece and dronfield theorize that juliana is not marianne and jeremiah's daughter but is instead james's daughter when james was 12 ish ish yeah so um, it's clear to me that their major piece of evidence for this is the testimony of the layer out which i've already established that i don't think is really anything at all their other evidence for this is that they think it's implausible for the bulkless to have another child because quote they'd produced only two living children in two decades of marriage and were both entering middle age (laughs) i hate to break it to you but people have gaps between their kids sometimes (laughs) for all kinds of reasons like you just have to go in the world and have conversations with like five people to discount (laughs) that thing Marianne uh, was born in about 1765 so she would have been like 36 to 38 at this time Uh fine age when a woman can have a child yeah i mean i think even considering the differences in the time period 
like presumably that's an older age to have children then than now. Yeah. That still doesn't seem that wild to me. As you noted, James would have been like about 12 to 14 at the time of Juliana's birth. Dupree's and Drunfeld note that girls might give birth as young as 10, but also note that the age of puberty has considerably lessened in the modern day and at this time would have been on average at about 17. To me, I just think it's more plausible that Marianne had a child a little later in life. I think so too. Like our evidence for this being James's child is very circumstantial. I feel like you're really grasping at straws mm. to try and make that work based off one random lady being like, mm, he's got stretch marks. Yeah. Rather than just being like, yeah, his parents who say they had a child and he's a child and they're within the age you can have a child, had a child. <laughs> like... Dupree's and Dronfield, however, just kind of decide that this is true and they start to speculate about who it was who raped James. <sighs> they decide that the most likely choice is Marianne's brother, Redmond. They decide he's most likely because he had quite a rocky relationship with the family. Redmond had been, before this time, hardened by the difficult conditions of life in the Navy and he was a violent, volatile, and occasionally criminal man. He was resentful of the comparative stability that Marianne had in life and stayed with her and her family in Cork in 1802, seemingly just because he kind of thought that he was owed their hospitality because she was doing better than he was. Mm -hmm. They had some sort of quarrel and he left and returned to the Navy. It seems to me that this quarrel was most likely just the result of Redmond taking financial advantage of a family who were already in an increasingly desperate financial situation. James actually also bailed his uncle out of debtor's prison in 1808 when he was living in London. And I think that if Dupree's and Dronford are correct and this man sexually assaulted James, that's not impossible, but surely unlikely. Uh, however, they don't like factor that into their story at all. This is really just like making stuff up. It really is. Like they just got three facts and then they just connected them with a very uh, flimsy piece of red string and now we're here pretending it's the truth in a book. Yeah, because their book is written in this quite like sort of novelistic way mm. as well, I think we discussed this last episode, they're quite reluctant to leave those sort of like narrative uncertainties standing mm -hmm. in the book and so whenever this is mentioned for the remainder of the book it's treated as a fact oh, and yeah. they'll randomly describe james as like missing his daughter and stuff like that and like that is clearly just made up yeah and that was very frustrating this this book was as i mentioned last episode like very well researched and i think that dupreece and dronfield are very very good at gathering a lot of facts but that's only like half the work of a historian you then have to <laughs> assemble those facts in a reasonable order and, and recount them in a... <laughs> <laughs> it's clear that where they reach the limitations of those facts, uh, I don't know if it's because of the sort of like target audience they're imagining for this book or just because like neither of them are historians as far as I know. They just kind of like make some stuff up. And it's very frustrating mm. because like I was quite inclined to trust them a great deal because of how well-researched I could see oh, yeah. everything was. And then I started when I was like going back over some passages of the story was kind of like, wait, what's the source for that? And I would kind of realize there were these big stretches of the book where they'd very confidently claimed something that they just really didn't have any citation for. Mm. Uh, and I was left to kind of be like, well, you know, if I assume that what you've cited is your only source, it's very unlikely mm. that what you're saying has any actual basis in established fact. So that's, that was frustrating. That's very frustrating, mm. yeah. Because I also feel like, you know, you can't check every single footnote in a book you're reading. So you do kind of get a vibe of the biography mm. and be like, 
most of the footnotes I've checked so far have really checked out. The sources have made sense. Yeah. I'm going to trust you on some things. Yeah. You ha- like, we don't really have any other choice than to deal with things that way in yeah. a project like this. Like, we're not writing our own biography. There's yeah. a very finite amount of time we have. So, yeah, we have to do that. And then stuff like this happens. Yeah, yeah. And then you're like, do I have to question every other thing you've told me now? Yeah. How much of this did you make up? To return to James's potential pregnancy, once he enters medical school and then the military, James's life is fairly well accounted for until his death, and it's difficult to find another interval when he might have had a child. It's not impossible. There are a few periods where we don't have like a great account of him, so it, like it's, it's possible, but I think it's most likely that he just never had a child, mm-hmm. and that the layout out was either mistaken or lying yep yep there's also been some speculation that james might have been intersex Mm -hmm. the earliest suggestion of this is dr mckinnon's statement in the letter i informed her that my own impression was that dr barry was a hermaphrodite yeah Uh, however i would point out that he continues but whether dr barry was a male female or hermaphrodite i do not know Okay. So that is not a clear, you know, claim of knowledge in that area at all. After James died, there was a lot of sensationalist discourse in the papers and so on that often had no real source and were clearly seeking to explain what was to their authors this very bizarre and unsettling situation. Mm. Dr. McKinnon's statements here are clearly better informed than most other contemporary writers, but I think still belong to this setting. Well, it's interesting that he says my own impression was that, I can't remember if he said James or Mr. Barry or whatever, was a hermaphrodite. But he doesn't get any information of, like, when or how he formed those impressions. Mm-hmm. Like, there's so little we can say about that because he doesn't say, you know, I've been James's doctor for 10 years and my impression is that he's a hermaphrodite. Or my impression based on the facts I've just read from this charwoman is that James is a hermaphrodite. Like, we just don't know how strong yeah. this impression is to him. Yeah. And, I, like, I also think in that same letter, you know, he recounts that he said to this woman, my own impression is that James mm. is a hermaphrodite, but he says like a bunch of stuff to her in that yeah. letter. It's not consistent at all. Yeah, so is it the case that this charwoman came to him and was like, hey, James is a woman, give me 3,000 pounds. And he was like, okay, based on the evidence you're telling me, maybe James was intersex, go home. Yeah, like, yeah. so yeah, I don't think not we clear. can really uh, conclude anything strongly from that. Yeah, like maybe, um, maybe he was, but, yeah, but again, we can't know. In the specific context of that letter, I don't think that the suggestion that James is intersex can be taken any more seriously than, say, the suggestion that he joined the army because he'd fallen in love with a soldier, which is also <laughs> a claim going around at the time. Well, I think this one has a bit more weight because it came from his doctor. It's just so hard to know like exactly what his doctor meant and why he said it. Mm. I guess I should also mention that like, it seems fairly clear that – Dr. McKinnon had never examined James's body in any particular thoroughness. Mm. And we have like other quotes from doctors who had examined him over the years. And because at a certain point, James reached a level of seniority in the army that you just kind of didn't, you know, go past a certain level of thoroughness in examining the body of someone who was like in some ways your superior. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I don't have the quote in front of me, but there was a doctor who would use this as an example in lectures after this saying, like I examined him and I never knew that he was anything other than like normatively biologically male. So like, let that be a lesson to you that no matter how fancy a person you're examining, not to like, let that stop you doing your due diligence as a doctor oh, yeah. kind of thing. So like, just to clarify, I don't think it's strange that a man who was his doctor might not really have had much of an idea about like what genitals he had or whatever. Yeah. There have been more recent 
claims uh, that James was intersex. So Rachel Holmes says, since Barry's death, there have been those who have speculated that the doctor might have been something other than a woman or a man, plain and simple. In the light of modern medical knowledge about the human body, it is no longer possible to dismiss these claims simply on the grounds that they are a sexist diversion and misogynist attraction from her unprecedented achievements. Which, okay, cool, fair enough. Holmes then goes on to discuss this theory for like 20 pages, but to be honest, I struggle to tell you what her arguments are because she doesn't really say anything of substance about why she thinks this. She kind of just like goes on at great length about like understandings about intersex people at the time and like says that intersex people have been written about in medical literature going back to the ancient Greeks. And it's like, yeah. But why is this person intersex? <laughs> like, intersex people definitely have existed throughout history. Yeah, but that doesn't mean that everyone's intersex. <laughs> One of her biggest pieces of evidence is James's university thesis, which was on femoral hernia. So this is a type of hernia that occurs in the upper thigh near the groin, and she gives several examples of people who went to their doctor thinking that they had a femoral hernia and were instead told that they had a recently descended testicle and were intersex. Oh, yeah. So she uses this to kind of form a connection between, like, general hernia and intersex issues and I think like essentially theorizes that this is what happened to James and that's why he's interested in this and my response was like okay like cool theory but I mean I feel like we kind of discussed a similar thing last episode when we were just talking about like how he did his thesis on femoral hernia and how like Viagra has been like that's because that's a condition that mostly affects women and James Mm. was secretly a woman like yeah Maybe it was linked in some way to his life or his experiences or whatever, but maybe he just did his thesis on femoral hernia. (laughs) Sometimes it's not that deep. We mentioned as well that like femoral hernia was like a a relatively topical topic at the time. Mm -hmm. There was a rather famous doctor, Dr. Ashley Cooper, who had also uh, just like published a book on this who James attended some lectures of when he was in London at the hospital as a pupil. Was Dr. Um, Cooper also intersex? That was what I was going to say. Like, <laughs> we just assuming that Dr. Cooper was intersex? <laughs> so I don't think that Holmes makes a particularly strong mm-hmm. case either. Cooper and Young evaluated this theory in their 2001 article and also concluded that James was intersex. However, their reasoning was that concealment of one sex for a year or two is probably manageable, but concealment for over 60 years including 40 years in the British Army, is simply unbelievable. Why would Barry take a male disguise? It has been suggested that he did so in order to enter medical school. If this was so, for Barry to have prolonged the disguise beyond his time in Edinburgh and indeed for a further 50 years, and even after his retirement, would have been both hard and inexplicable. So first off, obviously it's not inexplicable because trans people exist. Yeah. So uh, so, (laughs) we can can get rid of that. That's fine. Would it have been hard? I mean. Sure, (laughs) but like, I mean, clearly not that hard because he did it. And like James is far from the only person in history or the world to have done Mm. this. We see this occasionally on this podcast where people will suggest that a historical figure was intersex because that historical figure had some kind of gender identity or expression that didn't match their assigned sex and gender roles. Mm. It just kind of gets used as this, like, why isn't this person like a feminine woman? Maybe they were intersex, as if those things connect that easily. Yeah. And in such a straightforward manner. We saw this with Christina of Sweden where Mm. they um, did DNA testing centuries later on Christina's skeleton. No, actually, it wasn't DNA testing, I don't think. It was just maybe analysing the skeleton, like the shape of the Mm. skeleton. And then afterwards they were like, ah, wait a second. There's not enough research on intersex people to even recognise that from a skeleton. (laughs) Never mind. (laughs) 
cool. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I sort of feel like ultimately this theory has a lot in common with those put forward over a hundred years earlier, where it's just mm. they're presented with something that they don't understand and they're kind of just throwing an explanation at it to try and make it make sense to them. Yeah. But they haven't really provided that good reasoning anyway. It is still possible that James was into sex. I mean, it's possible that most people in history are into sex, but none of those who claim this have furthered a particularly persuasive argument, at least not that I have read. Ultimately, Kuba and Young conclude that the only way to prove their theory one way or another is if we were to exhume James's body and perform DNA analysis. <laughs> this may not be conclusive and also just frankly seems unnecessarily invasive for the question we're trying to answer there. So... It seems like there's little else to say about this at yeah. the moment. The last thing I wanted to do with this episode was a protracted analysis of James's gender and how it's dealt with in the sources we've been discussing, mm-hmm. uh, most notably by Dupree's and Dronfield in their biography. There are a lot of things that get said today about James and his gender identity. He's most recently been in the news because of the publication of E.J. Levy's The Cape Doctor, which was the subject of backlash because of statements that the author made about James and his gender. So that's like a fictionalized retelling of James's life, right? Yeah, it's actually about like Dr. Jonathan Perry, but it's very <laughs> That's pretty like yeah. thinly veiled. Yeah. <laughs> so I have not yet read this book to be clear, and I haven't read into it in depth, but I have read some statements by the author, and I'm pretty inclined to understand that she is also saying some pretty transphobic nonsense. Yeah. But it's like a very different kind of being bad at trans history than Dupree's and Dronfield do. And so I guess I just wanted to know that the discussion we're about to have about how James's gender is talked about today is not going to be an exhaustive one. It's not going to be a like catalog of bad modern takes. That sounds like a terrible, terrible episode. <laughs> well, this is what this podcast is for, Alice. So <laughs> we made a mistake. <laughs> I do want to talk about Levy's book at some point. I had originally wanted to include it in this episode, but now this episode is two episodes without even including it. So that is clearly not something that we can do. But I do think that talking about James's depiction in fiction would be worth doing still. So I think we'll put that out as a bonus episode on our Patreon at some point. Not like directly after this, because I haven't even read the book yet. I assume you want a break from bad takes about James too. Oh, I want to keep the bad takes fresh in my mind. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> now we have another bonus episode that we'll put out first, which I actually have a script done for. So like, you know, sometime before the end of the year, I guess I would like yeah. to do it. So, you know, if that's something that interests you, it's not on our Patreon yet, but, you know, you can head over there to keep an eye on, like, news about when it's coming out. We do not actually have any bonus episodes up yet, but as I've said, like, we'll have one up very soon. So by the time you listen to this, if you go over and sign up to our Patreon in a few weeks, it'll be a bonus episode. (laughs) So that's that. So yeah, now let's talk about some bad takes. Okay. So... At the start of last episode, I believe I said that we were going to call James by he him pronouns, but that we would discuss his gender identity more after we had more of his story. So I wanted Mm -hmm. to return to that now and just kind of explicitly address the question of, well, was James Barry a man? So Dupree's and Dronfield, to begin the takes, (laughs) understand James unambiguously to be a woman. Well, that goes against everything you've told me about James so far, but you never know. Yeah, let me (laughs) spin your yarn. We'll give him a chance. (laughs) Yeah. So they don't at any point in the main body of the book present an argument that James was not a trans man or even acknowledge this as a possibility. They argue he 
you as a woman, seemingly, because they don't really understand there to be a viable alternative. And this is what I kind of meant about how, like, these are very different takes on this issue than other ones we could discuss. Yeah. Uh, I don't feel like that's really the norm in, like, other historical trans when we've addressed previously often Mm. it will be addressed and just addressed very poorly so there's kind of like silence on the matter it was always difficult to start (laughs) to pick apart because i was like whoa i mean give me something to argue against (laughs) yeah i feel like much more often we encounter someone who like vaguely raises the possibility of someone being trans but like does not themselves understand being trans enough to yeah, talk about it in a meaningful exactly. way and eventually it's just like uh, i didn't really get that so let's just use the pronouns they were assigned to birth yeah yeah so as we've seen them do with other things Dupree's and dronfield do kind of like treat this as an established given and then proceed to tell the story as if that is a proven fact bad scholarship <laughs> Bad scholarship. <laughs> so we discussed last episode their theory that James had attended to run away to Venezuela and live as a woman mm-hmm. and their theory of financial motivation. We also discussed the issues with those theories, so we won't rehash that now. One piece of evidence that they find particularly compelling is a possession of James's that was discovered after his death. James's estate had been distributed by his agents, McGregor and Co. And one of their employees, confusingly a Mr. Barry, no relation. <laughs> Somehow ended up receiving James's gold watch chain and a few other things, including an old traveling trunk. Seems kind of dodgy, but okay. It does, doesn't it? Yeah. When he opened it, Mr. Barry found the... (laughs) Oh, yeah. All right. I know. (laughs) When he opened it, Mr. Barry, no relation, found the interior of the lid covered in a collage of fashion drawings from women's magazines. Oh, okay. Dupree's and Drunfield call this a catalog of loss and longing and make great use of it throughout their biography to depict James as longing to return to life as a woman. Okay. And this is certainly an interesting thing to exist. Yeah. And it's worth discussing the implications of this. It is, whilst very interesting, also very circumstantial evidence, and we can muster up a great deal of similar circumstantial evidence to make a case for James's male identity if we want to. James repeatedly cutting off people who'd known him when he was presenting as a woman, even when they were unlikely to expose him, and including his own mother, for example, springs to mind. James presenting as a man for his entire well, adult life. I, I mean, I kind of thought that was <laughs> obvious. I wouldn't call that circumstantial. Yeah. I mean, I guess, like, evidence that isn't literal personal testimony yeah bradford as well as a few other sources notes that when he was ill he invariably exacted from the officer who attended him a promise that in the event of his death strict precautions should be adopted to prevent an examination of his person giving us the understanding that not only did james want to live his life as a man he wanted to be remembered as a man Mm -hmm. holmes questions whether james was a man or a woman and chooses to side on the side of ambiguity using this to highlight just how preoccupied we are with being able to easily categorize people into one of two sexes however she also in my opinion answers her own question in saying from the time that james barry entered university to his death in 1865 he chose to be identified as a man it was how he wished to be known and his choice of identity should be respected well there you have it i mean in james's ideal world the charwoman laying out the body would never have undressed him Mm -hmm. and we would think james was a cis man yeah that is definitively what james wanted to happen james wanted us to think he was a man 
Yes. Th- that's it. We can go home. Like, <laughs> So ultimately, I largely agree with Holmes. You know, I think that sure, to some degree, there will always be an ambiguity in cases where there are sources like this meager. Mm. But I think that it is very, very likely that James was a transgender man. As you say, he definitively wanted us to understand him as a man. And at the very least, unlike in the work of Dupree's and Dronfield, it needs to be a possibility that is given serious weight by any biography of him, if it wants to be taken seriously. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's interesting that he had a trunk papered with pictures of women's fashion, but that doesn't prove anything. No. No. Don't. I also wanted to talk about Dupree's and Dronfield's gender biases, mm-hmm. misogyny. Are Dupree's and Dronfield both men? Yes. Okay. Their understanding of James as a woman really colours their entire biography. They kind of create this dichotomy between James's public male persona, which they view as fake, and his inner female persona, which which they view as the real James. And they do this by referring to him alternately by James and by the name he was given at birth, which I don't want to tell you. And I could probably make clearer to you the way they do this if I was willing to use those quotes. I'm just not going to. That's fair. I can give you some idea of how they do this in their use of pronouns, which they explain at the start of the book. They say, throughout the book, the gender pronouns used for James Barry vary according to situation, depending on whether he slash she is appearing in the persona of the male James Barry or that of her original female identity. Between those extremes, Barry is referred to as either he or she, depending on whether the viewpoint is his outer persona or her inner self. <sighs> I'm so tired. <laughs> <laughs> Which already like gives you an idea of how novelistic their biography is. They assign actions and thoughts to either James's fake man persona or to his true inner woman. And how can we know what's going on in his inner self? Be that a woman or not, like, this man died, what, how many years ago? 150 years ago? More? Like, you know, in 1865. And all his papers were destroyed in a shipwreck, like... (laughs) Yeah. I don't know what his inner self was doing. Yeah. So they write a lot of scenes from James's perspective using this characterization. So, for example, when he first cuts his hair short before going off to university in Edinburgh, they say, now when she looked in the glass, she saw a stranger who had stolen her face. That's just made up. <laughs> That's not history. It's just made up. It's a nice novel, but go write a novel. <laughs> Maybe he was like, damn, you look fine, boy. I'm hot. <laughs> yeah. Like, we just don't know. <laughs> this understanding also influences how they write many of James's actions that are not explicitly related to gender at all. So while in South Africa, James had treated the governor's daughter, Georgiana, and the biographers believe that his bedside manner and empathy towards her were as key as actual medicine in curing her because they think she had some kind of like mental health. issue that was impacting her health. They attribute this empathy not to James's male persona, but to his real female self. Similarly, James was quite fond of children, and they describe this as a mothering urge whose origin can be easily guessed. Men can be empathetic and good with kids too. Like, yeah. Once again, just go out and have a conversation with five people on the street and your ideas will be disproven. After James's death, medical journals began to state that elements of James's personality were explained because he was a woman. Did they ever, like, question or try to explain these elements when they thought he was a man? They were just like, yeah, that's just a human man going about his life. 
So these are, to be clear, like 19th century (laughs) medical journals, so like very old-timey. The Medical Times and Gazette said, for example, the physique, the absence of hair, the voice all pointed one way, and the petulance of temper, the unreasoning impulsiveness, the fondness for pets were all in the same direction. (laughs) There's a lot to unpack here, but oh, it's just misogyny. (laughs) Yeah, it is. Holmes, writing in the early 2000s, notes the ridiculousness of assigning James's temperament and love of animals to his perceived womanhood. As we know, men hate pets. Men hate pets, especially for a scientific publication. <laughs> yeah. But I would point out that Dupree's and Dronfield, the former of whom is a doctor, are doing the same thing in the 20-teens. Yeah, that's like he loved kids, therefore he was a woman. Like, is that any different to say he loved pets, therefore he was a woman? No. Women famously love dogs and children. <laughs> That's science. That's science. Dupree's and Dronfield also frequently relate instances when someone met James and noted that he looked feminine. Mm-hmm. The Comte de las Casas, who was an aide to Napoleon, was brought to the Cape when James was there and held as a prisoner by Somerset. Uh, that's a whole political situation <laughs> that we don't need to get into. Okay. It's fine. During this time, he met James. He remembered, I mistook the captain's medical friend for his son or nephew. The grave doctor who was presented to me was a boy of 18 with the form, the manners, and the voice of a woman. Similarly, in 1853, for example, James had dinner with a Lord Westmoreland while he was in Vienna. His eldest daughter, Rose, recalled in a letter to the editor of The Spectator on the 2nd of August 1919, when he arrived, we saw a small man with small features, a very smooth, though wizened face, very fair hair, and a most peculiar squeaky voice in mincing manner, the whole effect of which was so irresistibly comic that it kept all the youngest members of the party in agonies of suppressed laughter all through the dinner. His manner was that of a mincing old maid. There are many more quotes to this effect in the biography, and it's hardly surprising that James's appearance would be somewhat feminine, yeah. uh, and probably some of the sentiment is genuine. However, we should acknowledge that, with the exception of the quote from Las Casas, all other quotes were written after his death, often at a distance of several decades, and were therefore likely exaggerated or influenced by hindsight. Yeah. Dupree's and Dronfeld generally ignore any potential bias in these quotes and just present them as factual, often without pointing out that they post-date James's death by 50 years. Um, so that is kind of like, hey, everyone knew just when they looked at him that James was a woman, therefore James was a woman. Is that like the argument yeah, they're doing? Yeah, that is. We'll kind of like get to what they're doing with this in a second. Okay. But before that, I wanted to point out that they don't limit themselves to actual quotes. They also insert their own comments into the narrative. <laughs> so when James arrived on St. Helena, he met a Dr. Richard Hopkins. Dupree's and Dronfield have Dr. Hopkins note James's appearance, but there's no citation to suggest... <laughs> As in some other cases that this is based on a reference in his correspondence or something like that, they've just, as far as I can tell, chosen to insert it into the narrative. They also insert comments from James's perspective saying that he was growing ill at ease because his male identity was an imposture and ultimately impossible to perfect. Um, so as you've guessed there, Dupree's and Dronfeld present James's supposed effeminacy as evidence that he could not have been a man, saying that... He never could succeed in imitating the male persona entirely. It was apparently not in her. In a footnote to this statement, so that is said in the main body of it, and in a footnote to it, they say, this constant failure to shed her femininity is one of the strands of evidence against the idea that James had a transgender personality. Oh, so they do briefly be like, hey, was James trans? Only in a footnote. I said not in the main (laughs) body. 
That's such a crazy thing to do. Imagine writing an entire book about James Barrow and then being like, we might put him one foot. No, we're like, ah, he could have been trans, but like he looked feminine, so nah. Like, yeah. When was this biography written? Uh, It was published in 2016. Yeah, I can't believe people are still writing this stuff in the modern day, and yet there's so many of them are. Yeah. So they go on. She may have been bi gender, but we have no evidence for this. She lived one part of her life exclusively as a female, and the other with limited success as male. By modern definitions, it's not altogether certain that she counts even as a transvestite, since the decision to live as a man was apparently motivated more by ambition than identity. (laughs) (laughs) So we could unpack that for a long time, but I think we'll just settle for, like, that's not really what any of that means, and that's not how any of that works. I was just kind of mentally, just before you were like, we got to unpack that thing. Like, I really can't be bothered. I don't think we need to. <laughs> like, I think that our audience is aware that just because a transgender man does not pass as a cisgender man, that doesn't mean that he's faking it isn't actually a woman. That's just <laughs> nothing to do with reality. But those things are not linked. No. Also, like, there was just a lot of stuff about transvestite there that, like, uh, I don't think we even have no, time for today. No, don't. <laughs> And I just want to point out that I think that this argument, this perception is what is at the heart of their constant use of quotes about James's appearance. Mm. So in most of these instances, they don't contextualize or comment on this information. They merely present it to the reader to do with what they will. But the few instances that they do provide some kind of context or make a point with it, such as that quote I've just read you, are quite revealing. And then subsequent quotes like this begin to read as attempted affirmations of James's womanhood, and I think they would likely be read as such by non-savvy, non-trans mm. readers. Yeah. Somebody who picked up the book, perhaps thinking James was a woman, being like, hey, it's really cool that a woman was a doctor in the 1800s. Let me read about that. Yeah. And like, we've already made it pretty clear, but I just also wanted to point out again explicitly how ignorant the authors clearly are about trans people. Mm. Uh, As I've mentioned multiple times, this work is overall very well researched, much better researched and much better footnoted, I would say, than most books I've had to read for this podcast. But there is not a single trans related entry in the bibliography. I read it all through in spite. to check and there isn't one that's insane yeah it's just very disappointing that although they're clearly aware of the reading of james as being transgender that they don't bother to do their due diligence in investigating this yeah they just simply could not be bothered apparently they just didn't think it was worthwhile it's quite (laughs) alarming as well that like you said dupreeze is a medical doctor right yes yeah yeah he's retired now Uh, i believe like He wrote this biography, like, in, in retirement, retirement I, I think, is the situation. I just mean good, because, like, doctors see trans patients. Yeah, like, doctors like- see trans patients. I don't know, like, what – like, I didn't look at his LinkedIn or anything like that <laughs> if he's got one. So I don't know what his specialty was. But, yeah, like, doctors should be conversant with transgender issues in order to treat trans patients with dignity and humanity. Yeah. And I don't really have a lot of confidence in either of these men to be able to do that. Jeremy yeah. is not a doctor, but, you know. Okay. He's a human person who might be a trans person. <laughs> That's true. That's true. So, Dupree is a doctor. What's Dromfield's credentials? Uh, so, Jeremy Dromfield is a, like, biographer and, like, basically as far as I can tell, Dupree's put out a couple of papers about James and clearly at some point decided to turn that into a book. And I assume that he then got Jeremy Dromfield, who'd, like, done this kind of project before, oh, yeah. on board to kind of assist with, like, the writing of a project of that size. So they both seem to have done research for it. Mm-hmm. It's not that he's just, like, a ghostwriter or anything like that, as far as I can tell. But, yeah, that's why yeah. he's here. 
Okay, that makes sense then. So I wanted to turn away from Dupree's and Dronfield uh, a bit more for the end of this podcast and talk about how James's identity is valuable to us in helping us conceptualize contemporary transgender experiences. And I think this is true literally however you conceptualize James's own identity. James's experience tells us how a 19th century British person might go about transitioning from female to male. So we've seen James move cities and strategically cut off relationships for example, in service of that goal. And then we also have further sources about things like his clothing. One source, although I will note, like with a lot of these, it's one published after his death, said that while he was in South Africa, he stuffed his clothing with kapok, a plant fiber that's similar to cotton. So it's worth mentioning here, and I only know this from reading the Hornblower novels. I don't know what that Which, is. Which, uh, it's one of those, like, British Age of Sail oh, kind sure, of books. Oh, okay. cool. But one, like, scene I remember very distinctly is when he's first joined the Navy mm. and he's trying to, like, make himself, like, look impressive and more manly. So he does that. Like, cis men were doing this too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I didn't, like, really follow this up much. I didn't have the time, but I did see it mentioned that this is something that, like, dandies would habitually do just yeah. to make themselves look, like buff and sexy i guess yeah yeah like in the book he stuffs his breeches to make his calf muscles look defined oh i have heard about that before yeah 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 Yeah. so obviously that kind of thing if utilized by cisgender men is going to be like fairly visible in society but there's no reason why it would be limited to them yeah yeah and like you know the suggestion in this quotes is that it would have been used to provide some more bulk to Mm -hmm. quite a slight frame, which I guess is, again, like probably the same thing that cis men were using it for. Yeah. In 1836, James was forced to quarantine, relatable, (laughs) when a ship he was on had an outbreak of smallpox. I had not planned to include this, but I will tell you anyway that one of the things that happened was that the animals on board the ship were forced to swim ashore. They wouldn't take them back in the boat, so he had to just put Psyche in the sea and be like, swim, baby! (laughs) Wait. Why could Taiki just not stay on the boat with him? They take the passengers off the boat and put them somewhere in like oh, quarantine. Oh, so the passengers don't quarantine on the boat. No, and right. then like the boat leaves and like a bunch of their luggage gets either left on the ship so it just leaves or it's taken by the government mm-hmm. officials who row them ashore. But because I guess they want to limit the amount of potentially, I don't know, infected stuff they're bringing on board or whatever, they're like, no, I'm not bringing your dog. If you want your dog, your dog can swim. <laughs> So, like, poor little Saki, presumably quite a pampered small poodle, had to swim through the ocean. <laughs> I mean, poodles are water dogs. Like, poodles do like water. So, oh, I hope Saki had a great time. Saki had the time of life. James was like, this is a serious business. I might have smallpox, Saki. And Saki was like, I'm a dog. Anyway. So, anyway, while he was in quarantine for this smallpox outbreak, and he does not end up with smallpox, Good. a lot of his possessions were burned because of the quarantine by the local government. And he wrote to the local governor in complaint about this. Fair enough. Interestingly, in this letter, he mentions three pillows of a particular description necessary to me under the peculiar circumstances into which severe accidents have placed me and which cost me 15 guineas each, which is like a wild price for a pillow. (laughs) How much can a pillow possibly cost? (laughs) Dupree's and Dronfield think that these are most likely some kind of prosthetic that James had had made to make his build appear more masculine. Oh, yeah. Improving on this earlier use of Kapok. And whether he did utilize these things is not the point. The point is that they existed at the time and one could do so 
if one was trying to masculinize their build. I mean, it makes sense. Like, if you're going to stuff cotton down your socks every day, <laughs> you may as well, like, get some cotton sewn in the shape of a, like, well-defined calf muscle rather yeah. than having to try and shape that every day. Yeah. Like, yeah, it mm-hmm. makes sense. James also lied about his age, claiming to be younger than he was mm-hmm. in order to explain his appearance. When he applied to the army, he wrote that his age was 18, although he was, in fact, at that time 24, he would later claim he'd been even younger, giving his birth year as about 1799. So that's like taking 10 years off his age. Yeah, in his yeah. records, it's noted, if this is correct, he must have entered the service when he was 14 years of age. <laughs> <laughs> it also went the other way. So as James grew older, Dupree's and Runfeld speculate that his appearance and mannerisms would have been less scrutinized and mm. he was viewed more as just like a harmless eccentric, his appearance being no more notable than his ever-present dog or his vegetarianism. Just a weird guy. Just a bit of a weird guy. (laughs) Yeah. We can also analyze the social reactions to James. So after his death, the British Medical Journal wrote that it had been obvious that James was a woman, saying it was always suspected by those who knew him well in the army that he was a she. However, Holmes points to McKinnon, who admits that he didn't know any such thing, and John McCrindle, writing about James's time with his parents in Jamaica, also states they never at any time suspected his sex. That kind of also, like, comes back to Dupree's and Dronfield, kind of bring up all those quotes mm. about his appearance. They haven't said it, but they're also heavily implying that just, like, a bunch of people knew, yes. I feel. And, like... Yeah. I feel like it's apparent that a bunch of people did not know, given that nobody ever mentioned this until after James died. Yeah. So, a Captain William Dillon, who saw him for an eye inflammation in Cape Town, recorded in his memoirs the gossip that he'd heard about James, saying, Many surmises were in circulation relating to him. From the awkwardness of his gait and the shape of his person, it was the prevailing opinion that he was a female. But Dupree's and Dronfield themselves tell us that, in fact, it wasn't the prevailing opinion at all, other than among those who most relish skin. Most people simply wouldn't credit that a woman could do such a thing. Well, I mean, I think especially when we, like, know that there was a scandal between him and Charles Somerset Mm. about the idea that they might be sleeping together. Yeah. And, like, if there was gossip or, you know, people knew that he was a woman, I'm doing some quotes that our listeners can't see, like, surely in the process of that scandal... Which went to a court hearing. That would have been discussed. Mm. Somebody would have been like, hey... James and Charles are sleeping together and someone else would have been like, hey, actually, speaking of that, James is a woman. Let's just like- the elephant in the room of what apparently literally everyone in Cape Town knows, which is that James is a woman. Yeah. But yeah. no, Bradford, who we've quoted a few times, is one of the people that Dupree's and Dronford quote as someone who suspected that James was a woman, saying after his death, he was completely devoid of all the outward signs of manly virility. His voice was that of an old woman. However, later in that very same piece, Bradford continued – there could not have been any doubt among the people who knew him on the subject of his physical constitution, which was really that he was a male in whom the development of the organs of sex had been arrested from the six months of pregnancy. I will note as well that that part comes from Holmes's biography. Dupree's and Dronfeld choose to leave that out. Ah, <laughs> oh, yes, the selective use of quotes. Yeah. My last little anecdote is that while he was in Mauritius, James met a woman called Elizabeth Fenton. Our source for this is her diary, which was published in 1901, so like the standard qualifications there but in it she says that she'd recently been in calcutta where she'd met a nurse the nurse told her that when she had been working in cape town she and james had been staying at a patient's house and she had burst into his room without knocking and seen him undressed james had refused ever to work with the nurse again and eventually she left cape town moved to calcutta i guess Mm -hmm. 
Elizabeth prevaricated about whether or not she believed this, even after meeting James, but she never told him that she'd met the nurse, and apparently she kept the secret for the rest of her life. So ultimately, most people did not read James as anything other than a man. If they noted his appearance was unusual, there were several explanations that people came up with to explain it to themselves, such as the explanation that Bradford came up with. If they became aware of James's situation, they were likely to keep it a secret, either out of kindness or out of hesitancy to make such a big claim Mm -hmm. you know that's a pretty wild accusation to make and if you're wrong then like that's going to be a whole mess yeah yeah obviously like i'm not trying to claim that life at this time was great for trans people (laughs) or for like women for that matter but i think it's important in recovering trans history to be able to build these more general pictures of what life could have looked like for some trans people of mm-hmm. how people were able to make a space for themselves within society beyond more specific pictures of one person's life. And I think that that's part of the value of a story like James Barry's. Mm-hmm. With that, we've been Queer as Fact. My name is Eli. I'm Alice. If you liked this episode, you can find us on Podbean, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. If you find us on Apple Podcasts, you can kindly leave us a review if you would like to do us a solid <laughs> If you want to see more of Queer as Fact, you can find us as well on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr. We're Queer as Fact on all of those platforms. If you want to support us financially, you can find our merch on Redbubble, and you can also find us, uh, as I've already mentioned, over on Patreon. There's a whole bunch of rewards there. You can go and check it out if you want. But in particular, I would mention again that we're bringing out some bonus content soon, and hopefully sometime maybe like towards the end of the year realistically we'll have another james barry episode there where we dunk on this book like no issue (laughs) so uh if you want to read ej levy's the cape doctor and join us over on patreon i should also mention that all of our bonus content is going to be at the one dollar level to make it as affordable to people as possible we also have a website where you can find all of our links and information and whatnot which is queerasfact.com this is the last episode for the season so we'll be back on december 1st thank you for listening and we'll see you in season eight